If you turn to the Catechism, I'll read Lord's Day 48. Over the past number of weeks, we've been looking at the cross, cross purposes. What did Christ accomplish on the cross? We looked at the cross as the place of redemption, of sacrifice, of propitiation, of reconciliation. And this evening, we want to see the cross as a place of victory. And so I thought it was appropriate to read Lord's Day 48 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which deals with the second petition of our Lord's Prayer. What does the second petition mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you, preserve and increase your church, destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. And then if you turn to the Word of God, to John's Gospel, chapter 12, I want to begin reading at verse 20 and read to the end of 33. John 12, beginning at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Everyone knows that the cross and crucifixion was a most disagreeable form of punishment. 
It was brutal, so brutal, in fact, that the Roman orator Cicero said that the word crucifixion should be excised from our vocabulary. It was such a cruel form of punishment that no Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified unless they had committed some serious crime like high treason against the state. It was a most odious death, and it was usually reserved for slaves. And yet Christians glory in the cross. Christians love the old rugged cross. Christians survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And as Christian believers, we gladly stand beneath the cross of Jesus. We love the cross. It has become the symbol of Christianity itself. But I wonder if we always understand the cross as well as we should. Well, of course we don't, but I wonder if we understand it in the way that Jesus wants us to understand it in terms of its various facets. Most of us, I suppose, think of the cross as a place of weakness, of shame, of disgrace and humiliation. And that is undoubtedly true. But that's not the only way to think of the cross. Usually we think about the cross as the demonstration of the weakness of Christ. And if we want to see the power of Christ, we've got to wait until the resurrection. It's Friday, we say, but Sunday's a coming. And in one level, you understand why that is. Because when you look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the whole ordeal of the cross, it does look like Jesus is going to the cross in weakness. As you read through the gospel accounts, things are being done to Jesus. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested by the soldiers. He was led away to Caiaphas. He was falsely accused by uh, the uh, false accusers. He, he was spit upon. He was handed over to the Romans. He was mocked. He had a crown of thorns pressed upon his head. He was nailed to the cross. It seems like the, the cross ordeal for our Lord Jesus was all about what was done to him. He appears to be passive on the receiving end of everything. And it is only, it seems to be, it is only, it seems to be in the resurrection that Jesus actually does something. He rises from the dead on the third day. And yet if you read John's gospel, you'll see a bit of an adjustment in our view of the cross. The cross is not simply the place of Jesus' weakness. The cross is actually the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Hugh Martin, the great Scottish theologian, says, the cross is the chariot of triumph. As Jesus ascends the cross as his throne, from there he defeats all his enemies. It is in the cross that Christ is victorious. That he is the victor, the conqueror. We do not need to wait till the resurrection to see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in the cross. In fact, you can take the 
T of the cross and remind yourself that the cross stands for Christ's triumph. The cross is the place of victory. The cross is Jesus' throne. Now, when I say that, I don't want in any way to suggest that the cross was all joy and gladness for our Lord Jesus, that there was no suffering and hardship and shame and disgrace. That was all there, too. In fact, in the passage that we read, our Lord Jesus is contemplating the cross. And what does it say there in verse 27? It says that Jesus says that his soul is troubled. He's becoming discombobulated because the shadow of the cross is looming over him. The specter of the cross unsettles our Lord Jesus. As he contemplates the cross, as he reflects upon it, he becomes agitated and undone. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus tells his disciples that he is sorrowful even to the point of death, that the thought of the cross is almost killing him. And as he goes leaving his disciples behind him and going deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane, he collapses to the ground, overwhelmed by what the cross is all about. He knows that the cross is his death. He knows that he must endure the cross. Otherwise, he will not bear fruit because, as he says, a grain of wheat, unless it falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will produce much fruit. And he knows that there's no option for him but the cross and that he must die on the cross and that the cross was this fearful, horrible experience for him. So that Luther was right when he said that no man has ever feared death like this man. Jesus the Christ. And yet, though the cross was such a horrible experience for our Lord Jesus Christ, one which he dreaded with all that was in him, John's gospel particularly wants to remind us that Jesus does not go to the cross as a victim. That though it appears that everything is being done to him and he is passive in it all, that's not really the way it is. That's only apparently so. Jesus goes to the cross as a victor. You can see it in a number of ways. For instance, you'll know these words from John 10 where Jesus is speaking about how he lays down his life for the sheep. And notice how he says it. He says, no one takes it from me. That is, no one takes my life. I'm not a victim in this. Though they're doing all these things to me, it's not because I'm weak and couldn't defend myself. No, I am actually laying down my life of my own accord. Because that's the charge that the Father has given me. Not simply that I would die, but that I would give my life for the sheep. He is entirely active in his death. It is an offering of himself unblemished to God. And then you see this in John 13. We read there in John 13 verse 21 that After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. So this is at the Last Supper. He has just washed his disciples' feet. He has said that someone is going to betray him. 
And again, the cross unsettles the Lord. It troubles him. He becomes agitated because of it. And he says, someone's going to betray me. And the people ask him, the disciples, well, who is it? He says, it is to he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. That person is the one who's going to betray me. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And listen to this. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. I've said this before, but it's like this. There's a symphony, and Jesus is the conductor, and he's he's telling the different parts when they ought to come in. And here he knows that Satan has entered into Judas. And so he tells Judas, Judas, now's the time. It's time for you to, to get the show on. You go and do what you need to do quickly. That is, go betray me. And then after Judas leaves, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. It's as uh, Thomas Goodwin says, it's as if Jesus is filled with glee. The battle is about to begin. He cannot wait to engage with the enemy. He says later on in John 4, 14, verse 30, that the ruler of this world is coming. He knows that he's going into combat with Satan, and he can't wait for it to begin. And then in John 14, verse 30, Jesus is speaking with his disciples in the upper room. And then it says there at the end of the chapter, rise, let us go from here. Now that has lots of Old Testament significance, but what it tells us is that Jesus doesn't wait for the battle to come to him. He takes the initiative. He goes to the battle. He says to his disciples, rise. And that's an echo of what we read in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. Let me just give you a few passages. Psalm 68, verse 1, God shall arise. What happens when God arises? His enemies shall be scattered. Or Psalm 74, verse 22, it says there, arise, O God, defend your cause. Or Psalm 82, verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Jesus knows that this is the plea of God's people in the Old Testament. If only God would arise. And so here, as the battle day comes near, he says to his disciples, Rise, let us go from here. The battle's about ready to be engaged. And then John 18. That tells about to Jesus before Pilate. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. That is, I am a king. And then Pilate picks up on that, and he says to the crowd, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cry, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Then later on in chapter 19, Jesus is brought out before the crowds by Pilate. And what does Pilate say? Behold your king. 
And uh, they cry away with him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? They say, we have no king but Caesar. And then when, when Pilate puts Jesus on the cross, he put above him a sign that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Jesus is not a mere victim. I mean, even when they came to arrest him, he knew that they were there. He is the one who comes forward and says, whom do you seek? He ans- they answer Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I f- am he, and they fall down before him. We should dispel from our minds that the cross is what Jesus had done to him. He goes to the cross as the victor. He goes to conquer. And you see that in the passage that we read this evening as well. Because notice what it says in verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now in John's gospel, the hour is the hour of his death. And the hour of Jesus' death, he says here in John 12 verse 23, is the hour of Christ's glorification. Or look at what it says there in verse 32. He says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, it's not just that the gospel is telling us that Jesus didn't die lying horizontally. He died on a cross, elevated between heaven and earth. But it isn't just telling us about the elevation of the Lord Jesus. There's theological geography going on here. That is that the cross, the elevation of Christ, is actually his exaltation. It's his glorification. The cross is not simply uh, the place of the humiliation of our Lord, though it is that as well. But it's actually the place as well of his glorification. It's on the cross where Christ is honored and exalted. Remember how he says it in John 17, as again, as he thinks about the cross, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is his throne. It is the place where he sits with sovereignty. The cross is where he wields the scepter of the universe. The cross is where Christ, the exalted one, determines the destiny of the nations. The cross is Christ's throne. And from that throne, Christ battles. Remember, he doesn't battle for the throne. He battles from the throne the throne. He's there exalted, not as a victim, but as a victor. He is there in might and power. And from that throne, notice what's going to happen. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The cross is the place of victory. Well, what is going on here? 
Well, there's a backstory to this verse that it's important for us to understand. You know that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and when he saw what he had made, behold, it was good, very good. But then Satan, one of God's angels created by God, rebelled against him, and then he went down and slithered in the garden, determined to destroy everything good and godly. And so he tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and they gave in to the temptation. And at that moment, when they gave in to the temptation, God assigned all humanity over to Satan so that he became the Lord. He became, as Jesus says here in John 12, verse 31, he became the ruler of this world. Or as the Apostle Paul says, Satan has become the God of this age. And when Satan rules this world, his rule is an unmitigated disaster. This whole world is ruined and ravaged by sin, and it is going on into a calamitous downgrade forever. As long as Satan is the ruler of this world, this world will be destroyed. It will be devastated. Destruction will be the only cause or the only result of Satan's rule. And God is not about to allow his universe that he created, which was good, very good, to disintegrate into oblivion. And so he promises that he's going to restore this world, that he's going to bring it back to its pristine glory that it is ruined and ravaged by sin under the control of Satan, but it isn't going to stay that way forever. Oh no, Satan will not be the ultimate victor. He's only ruling this world under God's authority. And, And God promised already in the garden that there's going to be a war coming and there's going to be the destruction of Satan. His head is going to be crushed by the seed of the woman who in the battle will have his heel bruised. So God promises this great restoration of all things, this renewal of this creation. Satan will not forever be the Lord of this age, the God of this world, the ruler of this world. No, Adam might have just craved forgiveness after he had sinned, but that would have been wishing too little. Forgiveness would be granted, but a whole lot more. This world that was now ruined because of his sin would not remain that way forever. God had a plan to bring things back to their original glory. In fact, to improve on its original glory. And it would come through the seed of the woman. And so in the cacophony of lies and blame-shifting, and devastation in the Garden of Eden. These words of promise of the destruction of the serpent who had brought such devastation, these words of promise would have brought such joy and delight to Adam and Eve's ears. Things were going to change. They would not always be this way with all of the ugliness and the ruin of sin ravishing God's good creation. God was going to arise and by His might was going to put all His enemies to flight and all things would become new. That's the backstory. That's the context 
in which Jesus lived. And Jesus says that things are now going to change. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will be the rule. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus is insistent on this, that now, at this point, at the point of the cross, there's going to be this massive change in this world. Things are never going to be the same again because two things are going to happen. The world is going to be judged and Satan is going to be thrown out. What does it mean that the world is going to be judged? Well, usually when we think of the world, we think of the world in rebellion against Christ. And if we think that, then we think that certainly judging means condemnation. And so the cross is the place where all God-haters will be destroyed. That's what we think. But, but that's not the way to think about what Jesus is saying here. The way to think about judgment is not so much condemnation. Jesus says, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. It's to think of the judgment here of this world as a determination or an adjudication or um, to, to, to understand it in, in terms of a, a, a court of law where destinies are about to be determined. I, let me just explain it a bit further. What, what, what Jesus is saying is that this is a massive turning point in world history. If this world is going to be continued, uh, to continue under the rule of the present ruler, under the rule of Satan then devastation is going to continue, and it's going to downgrade to even greater and greater chaos. But if, on the other hand, Satan is cast out and Christ is installed as ruler in this world, well, then things are going to be going in a new direction, a a direction of renewal and, and restoration. And so, really, the cross here is going to determine that. That's where the judgment is going to be made. It's either going to go well for this world or the world is going to continue in its desperation and its disaster, calamitous downgrade towards further destruction. This is the hour of decision. A judgment is going to be made. Perhaps I could clarify it by this. I was thinking about this uh, yesterday that in 1974 there was the rumble in the jungle. That was a boxing match in what is now called the Democratic Republic of Congo between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. At that point, George Foreman was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the boxing world. But at this rumble in the jungle, that was going to be determined. It was going to be determined if that was going to continue. A judgment was going to be made. Would Foreman continue as the undisputed champion, or would his challenger, Muhammad Ali, become the champion? You could have said that at the rumble of the jungle, now is the judgment of the boxing world. Let's wait and see what is going to happen. And that's what's happening at the cross. The future is being determined. It all depends on what happens at the cross. Satan is the victor. 
then further destruction. Christ, the conquering King, wins. Then there will be restoration and renewal. And so Jesus says this is a really important time. This is the most significant event in all world history. What is going to happen on the cross now is the judgment of this world. But unlike the rumble in the jungle where no one really knew who would win the boxing match, George Foreman was the favored one, though Muhammad Ali did actually end up winning. At that rumble in the jungle, no one knew who would win, but this battle on the cross is not uncertain. Jesus leaves us in no doubt whatsoever about the outcome. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That is, Christ shall win. Satan shall be destroyed. So that there's a regime change going on here. There's a transfer of power. No longer will Satan be the ruler of this world. Christ is going to be installed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who's going to be given all authority in heaven and on earth. The cross is Christ's victory because on the cross he drives out Satan. He wrests control of this world from Satan's power. He takes it from Satan's hands and he is installed as the mighty victor in the cross. How do you do that, you ask? Well, think about this. What, what is Satan's power? Why does Satan, or did Satan, have so much authority? Well, it's because of human sin. Sin was the problem. And, and so because of human sin, the curse of sin was that God consigned all humanity to Satan. So if someone can deal decisively with sin then Satan's power crumbles. He has no longer a hold. And so here, Christ, the sinless Son of God, enters into the battle against Satan, dies on the cross as a victor, and in his death defeats the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. That's a quote from Hebrews 2, verse 14. So that in the death of Christ, because he goes to the cross as the sinless Savior, because death has no hold on him as the sinless Son of God, he is able to enter into death, and in entering death, he defeats death and therefore defeats Satan as well. The cross is the victory of Christ. There he has defeated the enemy, and Christ now has dominion over land and sea. The cross is his throne. In the cross, he defeats the enemy. But you ask, where's the evidence of Christ's victory? It doesn't look at all like Satan is that defeated. Sin continues. Rebellion persists. Wars Rumors of wars. I uh, hope to go to South Sudan in this coming year. And so I've been doing some reading on South Sudan, and it is just unthinkable 
the horror of sin in that nation. Boys, young boys, kidnapped, given AK-47s so that they can shoot against the kidnappers' enemies. Young girls, 10-year-old girls are kidnapped and used for nefarious purposes. It's too unspeakable to even mention in this place. There's ethnic violence. There's cruelty. There's destruction. There's devastation. There's enormous corruption among the leaders of that nation. It doesn't look like Christ is king at all. It looks like Satan continues in his victorious rule. But that's not the way it is. It might seem that way, but it's not that way. Christ said that the cross is the place where Satan is going to be cast out. And if that's not true, that is, if Christ didn't really cast out Satan at the cross, well, well, then we're in bigger trouble than you can ever imagine. Because all that Christ said can be subject to doubt then. So how does the victory of Christ evidence itself? Well, I want to say that the evidence is all around us. It's here. It's in South Sudan. It's in North Korea. It's in the Middle East. It's in South America. It's in Africa, all over. The evidence of Christ's victory is there. How do I know? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, remember his, his cross is his lifting up, his elevation, his exaltation, his glorification. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, the rule of Satan means that all human hearts are in captivity to him. And they cannot rescue. Humanity cannot rescue themselves from Satan's grip. That's what the gospel does. Remember how the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, as he, as he speaks about what God has done for these Colossians, he has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you see the victory of Christ in the conversion of nations. Christ is on the throne and the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth and Christ is drawing people to Himself. Not just Jews, but but Jews and Greeks. Remember that this passage started, that, that Jesus begins to think of the cross precisely because some Greeks came to Philip and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, the, the only nation under the rule of God was, was the nation of Israel. But now with the coming of Jesus Christ and the casting out of the devil, Christ becomes the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All the nations of the earth are given to him as his inheritance. He is uh, going to arise and defeat the enemy because the nations belong to him. And so whenever you see people becoming Christians, your neighbor perhaps, or you hear about the stories of people becoming believers. That's proof that Christ now has dominion because He's gathering through His Word and Spirit. He's gathering the nations to Himself. He has defeated the strong man, as it says in Luke 12, and now He's plundering His goods. 
taking people from Satan's kingdom and bringing them into his own kingdom so that they might know his joy and blessing and rule and favor forever. So you see the evidence of Christ's rule in the conversion of sinners and in the transformation of nations and individuals. Just think about your own life if you're a Christian. You're not the way you used to be, I trust. There were, there were sins that had, that had you bamboozled. There was just no way you could ever defeat them. But, but now, you're sometimes still tempted by them, but you don't give in to them. Why is that? Because Christ has, has cast out the ruler of this world. Christ is on the throne, and, and He's transforming your life. He's, he's making you more holy, more like Him, changing you from one degree of, of glory to another, driving back the kingdom of darkness in your life, and, and establishing His own glorious kingdom in your life. That's proof positive that Christ now has dominion. Or think of what He did among the Atedi people in Papua New Guinea. It was a, a culture steeped in sin and sexual perversity and immorality and cannibalism and wickedness and unthinkable degradation. And then uh, 1979, Brad Busser and his wife came to that place in Papua New Guinea. They lived among them for a number of years, won their confidence, learned their language, understood their culture, and then began to preach the gospel to them. These people were ruined by sin. Husbands and wives would always be against one another. They didn't love each other. The children were afraid of their parents. It was just a devastating society. And then the gospel was preached. And people understood who God was, the greatness of His love in Jesus Christ. And the culture was transformed. Why? Because Christ now has dominion. Satan's strongholds will come crumbling down because in the cross, Christ defeated Satan. There's the evidence. Every Christian believer, you, if you're a Christian believer, you are proof positive that the cross was a place of victory. Because if it weren't for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, you would still be in your sins, in bondage to the prince of this age, and in the domain of darkness without any way of escape whatsoever. But Christ has conquered in the cross. Now, what do we do with that? Well, there's lots of things that we can do, but I want to mention two things in closing. First of all, swear allegiance to this king. You know how it is when in political parties when there's a leadership campaign and you're a politician and uh, you want to know how to position yourself. Should I back this person or should I back this one? This one has a greater chance of winning, and if she wins, then I'm more guaranteed a cabinet position than if I back this person. And so, but it's a game. You don't really know who's going to win. Lots of strange things happen in politics. But there's no doubt about this. 
whom you should back, whose side you should be on. Of course, Christ is the conqueror. At the end of the day, he's going to be the victor. Satan is just going to, to from, from the cross, his existence is just downhill, and it's going to continue downhill until it ends up in the lake of fire and, and is never heard of anymore. Satan's glories are all past glories. Satan is a, is a has-been. He's a loser. Christ now has dominion. And so you stand before the cross, and you say, Hail King Jesus, you are my sovereign. You are my Lord. You are my master. I want no other God but you, no idols, but I want to worship you alone and come under your sovereign reign. That's the first thing you do. You hail this King Jesus. And then you live like he's a king. You live like he's a king. And so you relish his forgiveness. You don't let Satan torment you and harass you with past sins. Of course not. Christ is the victor. And he promises forgiveness of sins. So you relish this, that, that this Christ against whom you've rebelled has, has taken your sins and has died for them on the cross and has re- removed all condemnation for you. You relish the forgiveness of sins. And then you fight against sin. Why? Well, because you're the victor. That's why. Because you're united to Christ. Don't live as if Satan is the ruler, as if his law is what you must obey. Of course not. Hate sin. Fight against it. Don't give in to it because Christ is king. And then resist the devil. He's a loser after all, and he'll flee from you. And then witness to your neighbors. You can see, I, I see it. I, I, was, uh, I was at a McDonald's in, in uh, North Carolina a couple weeks ago, and, and this man who was just so ruined by sin, drunk and high, and his body was ravished, and his life was a disaster, and his relationships were just so toxic. But Christ now has dominion. So what do you do? Well, you tell them about Christ. You tell them that there's freedom, there's liberty, there's joy, that the Lord Jesus loves sinners and He came to set them free. You can't do it in their life. You can't change this man. And this man can't change himself. It was so heart-wrenching. He says, I know I'm the problem and there's nothing I can do about it. He was just so, so in angst because of the choices that he had made and the bondage he was in. But you witness to him because Christ is drawing people to himself because he's exalted, he's elevated, he is lifted up. And when he's lifted up, that's what he says he's going to do. He's going to bring people to himself. And then you give for missions. Perhaps you give yourself to go to the nations to tell them that Christ is king forever. Let the nations tremble. Let them bow before him in worship and adoration. Or if you don't go to the nations, then you support, you give of your money, you give your children, you give your money, because Christ is king. And the nations need to hear of his sovereign rule and his gracious invitation to come to him so that they would be drawn to him as their sovereign Savior and Lord. 
And what about the final eradication of sin? When will that take place? Well, that'll take place when Christ comes again. And when He comes as the victor at the end, then He will make all things new. All tears will be dried. Death will be no more. Sorrows and sin will be only something of the past. And we will live together under the gracious, sovereign rule of Christ with all of His enemies banished. Isn't it a wonderful thing (laughs) to be a Christian? (laughs) To have Christ as your sovereign Lord and by grace to be His subject. It is. Let's pray. O God, our Father in heaven, we bless you for giving your Son, Jesus Christ, to the death of the cross. And we thank you that the cross is a place of victory, of triumph. It's his throne. And from there he has unseated the prince of this world and cast him out. And to think that we are recipients of that grace, it's too much for us to take in. It's not that we did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. We thank you that Christ, by his word and spirit, has conquered our hearts, has captured us for himself has humbled us so that we have bent the knee and sworn allegiance to King Jesus. And we thank you for his gracious rule in our lives. We thank you that he has drawn us to himself. We thank you for the way that he is transforming us so that we are more faithful subjects. And we look forward, O God, to that day when all things become new and when this battle will be over and when Christ will be the undisputed and unrivaled King of kings and Lord of lords and when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and when he shall reign forever and we with him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's sing.